Welcome to Happiness 2.02 podcast. I'm your host, John Tuckums, founder, author, World Government Summit participant, and Forbes featured TEDx speaker, an inquisitive human who loves root knowledge. Happiness 2.02 is a mental health show for entrepreneurs that provides the full human cognition and the full breathing oxygen tools to rapidly shift states of mind and increase energy. Podcast guests include organization founders, world-renowned executives, MDs, PhDs, and remarkable leaders who have incredible stories and are helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen. You're listening to Happiness 2.02. This is your host, John Tuckums. You're listening to episode 20 with Dr. Sue Desmond Hellman. Sue is a keynote speaker and is the former CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. While you're listening to this podcast, if anything stands out to you as thought-provoking or remarkable, take a screenshot and write down what you've heard from Sue. Post the insight on social media, text the idea to a friend, or email what you've learned to a family member. Get this information out there. Without further ado, episode 20 of Happiness 2.02 podcast with Dr. Sue Desmond Hellman. Sue, time is a finite resource. Underline everything that you do across your life, your leadership, your vision, your speaking engagements. Why do you do what you do? Ultimately, what drives you at your core? The most important um, two characteristics of anything I sign up for professionally, one is that somehow I believe there's a connection to improving the human condition. I keep living my Hippocratic oath no matter how old I am. And the second is that somehow I have some unique experience or qualifications that allow me to add value. Very neat. And do you, uh, do you remember early on, I guess, as part of your middle school and you know high school, elementary school, that uh, you really decided that you know, really, this is something that I want to pursue in terms of uh, improving the human condition. You know, a lot of us go through life, we have influences, but you know, really to, to take ownership of that for yourself. Uh, do you remember in a moment in time or uh, certain circumstances that really started to kind of change your mindset? Oh, very well. Um, the, the, I grew up uh, in a big family, one of seven kids, wow. and my father is a pharmacist. Um, and from a very early age, I was completely fascinated by what he did. And um, he was very good friends with our family doctor. So I could connect my dad's job and what he did with what Dr. Smirnoff did and how if we were sick, my mom would bring us there and we would get better. And that whole sense of um, purpose. Um, they also just really enjoyed each other. They were both kind of wisecrackers and talked on the telephone multiple times every day. And so it seemed to me something where you help people, you use your brain and you have fun. Uh, nothing's better than that. Fantastic. And uh, did you develop a relationship with this family doctor over time or is it just more just seeing the interactions uh, with the with the family doctor that uh, uh, you really learned to grow and appreciate the, you know, your dad as well as the the family doctor. But with the family doctor in particular, uh, it sounds like that was a strong influence. Uh, Did that relationship kind of evolve over time? Oh, yeah. Dr. Smirnoff definitely was a big influence. And I didn't spend a lot of time with Dr. Smirnoff. You know, he's a busy guy. But one of the things um, my family likes to this day is we love storytelling. 
So I heard stories about Dr. Smirnoff. One of my favorite Dr. Smirnoff stories was when my dad had the flu and he was um, at home in bed. He had a very bad case of the flu. And uh, Dr. Smirnoff called in a prescription to the drugstore and my dad um, wasn't there. They said he was off sick. And my dad never was off sick, you know. So Dr. Smirnoff figured he was very sick. So we're at home and up comes a car and walking up the sidewalk uh, to to our front doors, Dr. Smirnoff, because he was sure that if, if Frank, my dad, was that sick, he needed to come in and, and check him out. And that was just the kind of guy he was. He just really cared when he uh, lived a very long life. And, and at a very, very old age, he continued to go visit some of his former patients in nursing homes just to say hello, check in on them. He was one of the kindest most caring physicians I've ever met. And yeah, he, he had a very big influence yeah. on how I thought I should show up. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And also that that human touch, which is so incredibly important. Can you share maybe with the audience too as well, just some of the other uh, influences, tremendous influences in your life? You talked a little bit about your dad or other influences that really have uh, rounded out uh, early on, at least uh, in terms of the person that you've become today. Well, um, one of the um, early folks who had a big influence on me um, was a, uh, an attending physician, uh, uh, Stephen Hall. And Dr. Stephen Hall was uh, an oncologist who I, um, uh, my very first on-the-ward experience as a third-year medical student, Dr. Hall was my attending physician. And I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I'm really sporty, and I thought I would be a sports medicine doctor. But boy, oh boy, when I worked with Dr. Hall, um, the caring for oncology patients, the science of cancer medicine, um, and again, just one of the most caring, um, intelligent, thoughtful people I had ever worked with, uh, he, he is definitely a big reason why ultimately I decided to become an oncologist. Um, and then uh, w- one of the biggest influences in my career um, professionally was Art Levinson, the CEO mm. of Genentech. Um, Art's, there's a lot's been written about Art, uh, a basic scientist who became a very successful CEO of Genentech. But one of the things I think people underestimate is the, the, um, w- what his secret sauce was encouraging people to believe that they were capable of more than they thought themselves. Wow. And that was absolutely true in my case. He, he, uh, he often challenged me to make things happen that I thought were impossible. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and not in a like crazy way or a mean way in a, you, you know, you can do this way. I have confidence in you. And I think, especially in today's world, um, leadership is hard. It's uh, complicated. There's a lot of incoming, but but reminding yourself that the the importance of bringing out the best in others, um, uh, and not setting a low bar for what you think they can do, but setting a high bar, yeah, and then being there if they need you to back them up. Um, art really taught me that. Yeah, absolutely tremendous. He uh, share as well with that, that journey of becoming an oncologist. Uh, imagine there's a tremendous amount of adversity um, as you're going through managing studies. He uh, share with the audience some of kind of the, the challenges that you overcome early on uh, in terms of your journey and uh, love to hear more. Oh, well, the, 
I would say um, before I became much more of a product developer, when Mm. I was more of a clinical oncologist, a few things that really challenged me as an oncologist, the first was that I was in San Francisco and at UC San Francisco um, in the 80s when I became an oncologist, um, our, our lives were filled with trying to do something for patients with HIV AIDS. Yep. And so the only thing worse than having cancer is having cancer and having AIDS. And so the, the, um, it was tremendously challenging to have before highly active antiretroviral therapy to care for patients who were my age, who I couldn't save. Yep. And I just, um, I felt like I didn't have the right tools as a, just as a human or as a physician uh, to cope with that and really had to learn a lot. And I learned a lot from colleagues in the AIDS clinic, nurses and other caregivers um, who I partnered with to figure out what we would do until we had better therapy and until we had something to do. Later, I had um, uh, similar uh, questions, but more questions of risk and benefit. Um, uh, I practiced oncology in an era when um, uh, breast cancer patients were being treated with bone marrow transplant. Mm. And I was very troubled by the adverse effects and the, the um, how difficult it was. And ultimately for metastatic breast cancer, bone marrow transplant proved to be um, an ineffective therapy, um, but it was sure hard on the patients. Yeah. And so the, the, the concept of um, as I practiced oncology, the, the concept of making sure that I was an effective communicator and understood the patient's wishes, but also the, the wanting to fight, wanting to, to get rid of the cancer, at the same time, making sure that people's quality of life and their engagement in, in, in driving their future um, that both those things, those things were there, particularly in an era when I first became an oncologist where we didn't have as many effective therapies as we do today, happily. Yeah, for sure. And thank you for sharing that. And that, uh, just imagine, you know, you have a person in front of you, a human being, and you have a certain tool set available and you really have this, this knowing inside you that you, you want to do more and really trying to find that balance for you know, the person's quality of life and even the best care possible. Uh, imagine that it's just incredibly hard to go through. And it's, uh, it's really that, that human element that uh, you're looking at these people and knowing, knowing a little bit about their history and family uh, that uh, must have been incredibly challenging. If, if I could switch gears just a little bit, as you've learned to, uh, you know, really working with Art Levinson and uh, really being exposed to these uh, amazing circumstances where you didn't even know if what was kind of put forward on the table in front of you was even possible to do. Uh, can you share about, uh, you know, some of the things that you do to get to kind of pinnacle states, uh, flow states or experiencing flow uh, where everything starts to kind of move um you know, incredible speeds. Um, can you share a little bit uh, some of the circumstances that gets you to those states? For me, that's all about a combination of a couple of things. I've already mentioned one, which is, you know, the, the eyes on the prize, that what you're trying to do, you know, get a new medicine approved for patients who are waiting for it, just really matters a lot. So the sense of purpose and mission and, and, importance of what you're trying to do. But, Mm. but I think there's another thing that, um, 
for me, if you want to make something special happen, it's having a great team. And the, uh, there was a point in time where when we were moving really fast and great things were happening, where I felt like any particular day, if I was just exhausted or felt like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> this is too hard. Somebody else on the team would have a lot of energy yeah. that day and, and push. And it is so yeah. easy to underestimate and, you know, kind of be, um, uh, think of teamwork as sort of lame or something nice to have. Boy, having a team where people have your back and you feel like there's just this incredible power of a lot of, of diversity, a lot of diversity in who the people are, a lot of diversity in what their backgrounds are, what their talents are. Having a really powerful team for me creates the opportunity where I don't, I stop worrying and get excited. Mm. Uh, it, it takes, imagine it takes an incredible uh, weight off your shoulders, even though there is a tremendous amount of weight and you might be exhausted, but uh, uh, you know that there's, there's other people that can, can really kind of boost the energy. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Can you describe, uh, sometimes it's hard to put into words when you've been in these incredibly fast moving, uh, really you know, working towards a, you know, a new medicine, you know, things are going at warp speed. Um, what it feels like in terms of uh, your mental state or your breathing, uh, your clarity or your kind of expansiveness in terms of creativity. Um, sometimes it's, you know, just if you could put it into words, I'd love to, to hear what you, what you say. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not confident I can put it into words. I, I just feel like you, you, when you're in those points in time and it doesn't always work out, but the, the sense of pace, the sense of purpose, but, um, while, while I find that exciting and compelling, I also think that when, when you are on a team and you do have all those elements that I discussed, I don't actually feel like, um, hyped up. I feel calmed down. Like it's you know, like you're sort of in a zone and you know, what's supposed to happen next the next day and the next week and um, things are outlined and it's a matter of making sure those things happen oh, in, wow. in the way and the pace that you want them to happen. Um, and so for me, it's, it's a, um, uh, a sense of, of like that you are like in a zone. Um, but, but I will say the, the, um, because it can feel that way, I think it's easy to underestimate when, when people are counting on you and your team and there's a lot of stress and pressure. And for me, the biggest pressure in product development is always that people are waiting and they need what you, what you're trying to make happen. Um, so somebody might die if, if you go too slow, um, or some, many people might die if you go too slow. But, but one thing I've always, um, well, two things I've always counted on, mm. and really since since yes. medical school and in some ways before that, um, I always um, try and get a good night's sleep. Like, you know, I'm not an all-nighter person. I don't do that. Uh, I don't. I think that decreases performance, not increases performance. And I always get exercise. And and I've I've felt like whether it's patient care, product development, yep. um, working on. Uh, 
um, on philanthropy. Anything that I'm doing is better if if those things happen, even if I might um, feel because the purpose and the team and everything else is is feeling so good, even if I feel like, okay, I don't need that. Um, I always do. Yeah, it becomes uh, it's almost like a backstop that I just want to make sure that uh, it's in place, uh, regardless of what's what else is going on. Yeah, thank you. It's beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, shifting gears just a little bit, uh, what are some of the small things you do to maintain happiness, health, or well-being uh, in your personal life? Whether it's uh, you know the way that you start off your day or the way that you end your day, uh, but if you could share with the audience some of the small things that you do, life has its ups and downs, and not every day is perfect, of course. Uh, but some, what are some of the small things that you do? Well, I I'm not sure it's small. I, I uh, picked a really good husband. <laughs> That's probably the single most important, and so I uh, make sure I pay attention to that. So uh, amazing. My husband and I have been married now for 33 years, and uh, um, and I'm grateful for that. So spending time with him is really an important part of of uh, my life. Um, I'm. Uh, um, a morning runner and exerciser, and I make sure I get uh, my exercise. I also am a very big reader, um, and the um, I like oh. reading things that don't have to do with work. Um, I, I consider you know fun reading to be different than work reading, and I particularly enjoy reading biographies and history, and uh, so reading is a really important part of it. Um, before COVID, um, I loved getting together with my giant family and doing things, especially in the summertime. Um, so I think uh, um, I'm missing that a lot. Um, but but getting outside um, is really important to me. Being out uh, in nature, getting to ski or or cycle or or run. So just being yep. outside or being in the mountains is is. Uh, uh, a really special thing. So, you know, I have a big list. I, I actually like, um, I, I've yeah. always liked working, um, and, uh, enjoyed science and reading and, um, the technical parts of work. Um, but I also really like not working, um, and have always enjoyed, uh, um, vacations and enjoyed um, doing things with my husband. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. And uh, it sounds uh, just kind of uh, in between like family is such an important element of uh, uh, kind of your upbringing with a, a large family and also, you know, through to today, it's a very important staple. And thank you for sharing too, as well, just, uh, you know, as it relates to your know, nature and really that mix of kind of that science and also kind of not science as well, kind of to, to round out your reading and probably to expand your vision too, as well. Can you share as well with the audience, is there any ways that you kind of finish off your day? Do you have any routines uh, that uh, that you could share with the audience or areas of thought before bed, whether it's planning for the next day? Well, one of the things that um, one of the bad habits I had when I was at the Gates Foundation is, you know, it's a global enterprise and so much uh, content that I would find myself, you know, on a device uh, and then thinking I could go from device to hitting the pillow and so I read that book, Why We Sleep, um, and uh, spent some time studying sleep hygiene and, and uh, thinking about um, not thinking about work all the time before I went to bed. So for me, the, um, 
I, I'm I'm very focused on sleep hygiene. So having a nice dinner, yep. relaxing after dinner, not having caffeine, um, uh, and uh, reading a paper book, not not even a Kindle or anything like that. <laughs> reading a paper book um, with no screen um, uh, and something I enjoy. Uh, so it's, I'm, I'm not one for meditation. I actually got one of those meditation things, but it's not my style, but I think just relaxing yep. and, and reading something on paper and getting off the screen, um, is, uh, really, really important to me. Um, and having it be dark and cold and a lot of other things that I think are good for sleep. Um, and, and, um, I'm measuring sleep now is greater than or equal to eight hours. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. That seems like an amazing mark to, to shoot towards. Not every day, of course, but uh, uh, if you get close. It's a good goal. And actually, now that I'm not spending much time on airplanes uh, at all, uh, it's it's uh, a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Sue, uh, you've had this amazing journey in terms of kind of early influences, family doctor, uh, your your dad as well. Um, you know, just uh, you know, you know, Doctor Stephen Hall. You know, this this journey where uh, you've been uh, probably under some of the most intense kind of pressure situations where deadlines are coming up, lives impacted, and uh, you found uh, really uh, amazing ways for yourself to kind of to find that space within, so for yourself to recharge. Uh, I'd love to find out more um, as part of your journey, uh, what you're currently working on uh, as you've uh, developed this amazing skill set, working on these incredibly complex projects. Um, Can you share with the audience some of the stuff that you're currently working on? The things that I'm working on um, are a combination of um, for-profit and not-for-profit. I'll start with the not-for-profit side. Um, at the Gates Foundation, at the end of January, I stepped down as CEO uh, and became senior advisor. And there's two areas of the Gates Foundation that I particularly continue to be involved in. One aspect is the Gates Medical mm-hmm. Research Institute, which is is working to assist in the product development for some of the toughest things to do in translation in global health including COVID. (laughs) And the other is um, a really interesting commission that I serve as co-chair for, which is the Value Commission for Higher Education, Uh, attempting to answer the question that families are asking about whether or not their uh, um, loved one will get a return on investment uh, to pay the kinds of high tuition that exists today in colleges and universities. Um, and so that's been really interesting uh, um, as a follow-up to the work I've done at the Gates Foundation. In addition, I'm working in a couple of different um, not-for-profit groups that are looking at the future of science, science and society, science post-COVID, the importance of science in the United States, and whether or not people trust science, um, uh, which is extremely important. And I'm very concerned about the communication of science uh, and the believability of science uh, to Americans uh, today. And then I'm, um, uh, I've moved back from Washington State to California, and uh, um, I'm a, an adjunct professor at UC San Francisco, 
and working with some colleagues at UC Berkeley on some of the things they're doing in public-private partnerships. On the private side, um, I'm working, uh, again, as an advisor with a couple of firms, just looking at early ideas and things to invest in in product development and life sciences. And then I joined the board of the um, pharmaceutical company Pfizer. Um, so I, I serve on their board of directors now. Yeah, which is, uh, it sounds like an incredibly full plate at this point in time, uh, you know, across all the It's funny. <laughs> For sure. Uh, could you share with the audience too, as well, uh, you kind of touched upon, you know, really that importance of, you know, the importance of science ultimately, uh, but uh, the communication around that and uh, you know, really the importance of public health uh, as we navigate through these incredibly uh, challenging times at this stage. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it, it's interesting after all of the training that I did um, in medicine and oncology, when I was at UC San Francisco, I made a decision to go back to UC Berkeley and get a master's in public health and to study epidemiology and biostatistics. And to this day, um, I'm really glad I did that. And I feel like we need to think differently about how we teach in schools and, and the exposure that young people get to in two areas that are so important in our world. One is public health, which is how do you keep yourself well? How do you keep your family well? What are the things I, you know, I mentioned sleep, you could talk about nutrition, exercise. What does it mean to, to drive your own fate? And, you know, you can't avoid all diseases, but I'd love for young people to have as good a, as possible uh, an insight into how to keep themselves um, well. And the second thing is climate change, which is related to that is, is young people getting, again, more of an education on that. It, because that's also science and climate science and, and really understanding the world. And so for me, the, the, if you started young, if you feel like science is fun, science is going to help me, science is going to help my family, it's a lot more powerful and engaging than what feels like the world that we're in right now, especially with COVID, that science has become politicized and that whether or not you care about masks or believe in vaccines depends on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. That's just nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it's just nuts. And yet I feel like scientists need to take accountability for not having done the kind of job we need to do to bring people along with the scientific process. The scientific process, it, it isn't um, rigid. Scientific process does evolve. The fact that science changes based on studies is different than that somebody's wrong or they lied or that it's fake news. It's, oh, okay, we have a new study or we have new information. Um, and yet I feel like we don't do as good a job as we need to in our communication of, okay, it's, it's Wednesday and here's the best information I have to tell you. If it changes, I'll update you and, and expect it to change because that's how the world works. That's how science works. Um, I think those are the kinds of things that scientists need to do a better job and it, in an educated population, in a population that's had some training in school, 
it's much easier for them to say, okay, here are my questions. Here's what I need to understand from you so that it is a respectful two-way dialogue, which you're never going to change somebody's mind by cramming things down their throats, but having a respectful dialogue about here's the best information we have. Here's what I believe is best for your family. Here's what the Food and Drug Administration is telling us. Those are the kinds of things that I think post-COVID come really high to the top of the agenda. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in terms of uh, timing too as well, it's you said post-COVID, which is uh, we don't know how long that journey is going to be, but we know that there's going to be an evolution to it. Uh, when do you think uh, kind of uh, when you say post-COVID, um, you know, as people look for new ways to communicate as it relates to science, kind of here's the best information in, in creating a new dialogue. Um, when do you think that the kind of the earliest starts? Because I imagine that, uh, you know, before, you know, post COVID, you're going to start kind of rebuilding the system, re- redesigning it or getting new ideas out there. You know, I imagine that you're already starting at this stage, but uh, when do we st- start seeing changes like six months from now or nine months from now, just in terms of the ways that science can be communicated to, to the general public? Well, there, there's a couple of things that I think we, c- we can and should do right away. Um, one is on the testing front. Um, there's so much more that can be done in terms of, of testing, uh, particularly in areas where, um, it, where the risks are very high. Um, so I think using having testing be available, having testing turn around more quickly, um, so the whole thing about uh, testing to see if you have uh, COVID, I think, is a massive opportunity, mm. um, not just to, to help with managing the pandemic, but also to engaging people in, here's what that means for you. Here's who should get tested. Here's, here's the test results in your community. And then getting ready for the vaccine is a great opportunity to talk to people about what the results are of the vaccine, when uh, FDA finds a vaccine safe and effective, here were the, was the information, here's what you need to know, here's who will get the vaccine and how, and, and here's the side effects of the vaccine. So I think that both testing and the vaccination provide a very um, uh, fertile area of public health that can engage people and community members. I'll tell you, if you're working on polio or Ebola, both of which I experienced at the Gates Foundation, um, and I'll give polio as an example, in northern Nigeria, we went to the Imams. We went to the religious leaders in northern Nigeria mm. and talked to them about the community and the health and speaking to the people in their community about how scary polio was and what the vaccine could do for them and, and the attributes of the vaccine. It, it, it isn't a top-down thing. You go to community leaders. When Ebola, um, the really scary epidemic in 2014-15 in DRC, finally got tackled when community leaders got involved, when people locally talked to each other to get trusts and confidence in the remedies and, and what it took to get rid of Ebola. And I think the same thing is true with COVID. Understanding who drives decision-making in a community, understanding who people believe, um, and then working with them in a respectful way to get the information out. I think that's going to be particularly important with the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely amazing. And that's, you know, that's not a two-day series of events. This is 
Big work. Yeah, big work big and work. establishing yeah. relationships where there may have not have been relationships in the past and bringing in the most you know, trustworthy people so that and the most straightforward in terms of uh, kind of candid responses so that as you're building these relationships so that as individuals that are representing their community can go back to their kind of constituents, so to speak, you know, it's absolutely amazing. So really what I'm hearing from you is that you've kind of developed practices in the past, which we now have this enormous opportunity to, to really bring across North America and the world as we face kind of, uh, I'm not sure which inning this would be in terms of using a, you know, sports analogy as it relates to baseball, but, uh, you know, as, as it pertains to COVID. So just a huge opportunity. Is that correct? I so agree with you. And I think that the, the, as, as I'm talking about things like testing and the vaccine, I mean, you, you mentioned what inning we've got sports trying to start up schools, trying to restart. It, it is, um, this is an immense challenge and I would love for us to both um, to, to both impact the pandemic so that people's lives improve. But at the same time, I think it's like anything else in life. We're building muscles. You know, there's a muscle for how you test. There's a muscle for how people congregate when it's necessary. There's, there's a muscle for when you have a therapy, how it's tested and, and how you communicate and what the feedback loop is and how uh, food and drug administration works. So some of these muscles, I think, have atrophied in the United States. You know, our public health system has been underfunded and underused. So, so really rebuilding that op- opportunity to use public health because public health is extremely cost effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely incredible. And really, it's that that piece right now where you know, not reverting back to the status quo. I think that's the other piece too as well because you know it really is about improving lives and, and building that muscle and actually. I think too as well using using your analogy, it's actually building new muscles so that you know yeah. we can let the ones that need to atrophy you know, you know go ahead and atrophy and but we place them with uh, new muscles which are stronger. Fantastic. Uh, is there any other initiatives that you want to talk about as it relates to uh, not for profit or uh, private uh, that you'd like to to share with uh, you know the public? I know you talked a little bit about uh, you know children and really making science fun and being a part of that journey. I'd love to find out a little bit more about that. Uh, and also, when we think about science, it's it's hard to you know you know think about who those role models are. So a child looking, you know, when you think about science, you might think of it as a course. Uh, but you know, really, that having those kind of people at the forefront. Uh, imagine that you're exposed to a, men- a tremendous number of the scientists who could be those people, but they're not necessarily known. But if you could share it with the audience too, as well, uh, you know, that have children, uh, kind of how they can have their children exposed to fun aspects of science, and it, as it starts building their muscles, so to speak. Yeah. No, I, I would say a couple of things. The first one is the. Um, I've been privileged to work in academia and private industry and philanthropy and uh, do science in all three of those areas. I don't consider like a black hat or a white hat or good or bad. I think all three of those areas, you have a massive opportunity to make an impact using science and technology. And so um, the, it, it, for young people, for students, these are, great opportunities for the future, great opportunities for good jobs, um, and to make an impact. Uh, and so I think that's really important. 
for parents, I, I, I think that the, the most, um, the, the thing that's really fun that I see, uh, um, is in everyday life, things happen that have to do with science. Um, in everyday life, it's, uh, it, it, you, anything from animals outside your house or pets you have, um, to things you see on TV mm. or hear on the news, um, there's the parents almost surely underestimate. And that's why I love to tell the story of my dad, just telling stories about our family doctor, the exposure I had at the dinner table to talking about science or medicine or, or, um, drugs or things like that was just awesome. And it was, it wasn't like, it wasn't boring. It wasn't remote. It wasn't for somebody else. It was something that was real for me. And so I think just, just understanding and explaining things that have to do with science or technology and engaging kids in that is a, a huge gift that any parent uh, give, gives their children. I think it's, it's um, outstanding. I can't think of a better role model than Tony Fauci. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, he, he may not be a pitcher, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a guy who's been engaged in science fighting infectious diseases for 40 years and looks as energetic and as much as he's working hard and dedicated to uh, helping the human condition as anybody I know. Um, and there's so many people like that. There are so many wonderful people who are working on, on COVID, who've been working on HIV AIDS, uh, who work on cancer, um, who work on better uh, computers or going to the, to the moon. Science is really fun. And you get to be around a lot of people who are interesting and provocative and you get to work on fun things. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Uh, Sue, where can people find you or find out more about, uh, you know, your current work? Uh, uh, so I'm on Twitter at Sue D, like Desmond Hellman, two L's and two N's. And uh, um, I also have a Facebook page. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Sue, do you have any parting words for the audience? Uh, you've been on this remarkable journey of really having these amazing influences really on your life, being a part of these, uh, you know, wonderful conversations and probably incredibly creative and lighthearted, uh, but also, uh, you know, really amazing topics, I imagine, around the kind of the dinner table uh, through to, you know, leading a global organization, uh, you know, and working across, you know, amazing organizations, you know, prior to that. Do you have any kind of parting words for the audience as it relates to really communicating health, you know, the importance of public health within their families or within their companies, you know, as kind of a parting thoughts? Yeah, maybe two. Um, first of all, the push yourself to learn a little bit more about public health. Push yourself to be a little more in the weeds on what's going on and how it affects um, yourself, your family, your workplace. Um, but the second thing is, uh, you know, we're now um, many months into this really tough uh, period of time. And so uh, be kind to yourself. Uh, it, it's okay to have a little fun. It's okay to, to enjoy your family, get outside. It's actually really good to get outside mm -hmm. from a public health standpoint. Uh, so be kind to yourself. Sue, thank you for your leadership, your vision, your speaking engagements, and all the happiness oxygen you bring to the world. And a tremendous thank you to all the listeners. As always, this has been your host, 
John Tuckums. You have made it to the end of the podcast. It's your host, John Tuckums. I want to take this moment to sincerely thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the time you're taking to invest in your life. And if you gained something valuable from this episode and want to give me value somehow, I would tremendously appreciate if you went to Apple Podcasts, iTunes. If you have an Apple product where you listen to this podcast and leave this show a review, you are free to send me a message or email. Contact information is in the description below. Thank you again for listening and thank you for your contributions in helping billions of people to find their happiness oxygen.